thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Q Barbecue Sterling joins us to kick off our aircraft series with an in-depth look at a multi-role fighter attack aircraft renowned for its lethality and reliability. I flew the F-18, some version of it, in every tour throughout 20 years in the Navy, and I never had a major incident that caused me to be worried about whether the airplane was going to make it or not. And I think that speaks to the reliability of the airplane and uh, how it was built, how we're trained, and how we maintained it in the Navy. And that's really the best thing, I think, about the F-18 in my time with it. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am indeed your host, Jello, here with my co-host, Sunshine. How's it going, dude? It's going well, Jello. How are you? Life is good here, buddy, and this is episode 37. We're talking your and my favorite aircraft, the Boeing FA-18 Hornet and Super Hornet. And for the sake of brevity in the title, we're going to use a grammatical shortcut by putting the word super in parentheses. Sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't. How does that sound? Great idea. Okay. Now, Sunshine, how many hours do you have in all models of the FAA-18? I have about 1,800 hours. 1,800. Okay. Well, I have about 3,200, and our guest barbecue has about 2,800. So between the three of us, we have nearly 8,000 flight hours of experience on the FAA-18. And we're going to get into that discussion in just a few minutes. But before we do, some announcements and listener questions, as always. Now, Sunshine, you know this, but for the sake of our listeners, we have a brand new parent company for our podcast, and we're calling it BVR Productions. And Sunshine, this title actually was your idea. We put some questions to the listeners and got a bunch of different good ideas, but we ended up going with the one that you came up with. And remind us what BVR stands for. BVR is beyond visual range. And if you think about our podcast, we're here in the United States and we definitely transmit to those that are beyond visual range. That is true. We are an audio podcast that exists everywhere, but we created this parent company because we intend to do much more than just the podcast. And in fact, some of it will be visual as you and I have been working on trying to get that aerodynamics lesson done one of these days where we find an opportunity to get together and get through that. But yeah, we have a lot of different ideas and we were a bit fearful that the title podcast might limit our endeavors. So now we are BVR Productions, which produces the 
Fighter Pilot Podcast. And in fact, our whole team now has email addresses. We shortened it to just BVR Pro. So you can still send questions to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com, but you might hear back from either Vincent at bvrpro.com or brian at bvrpro.com and that's where we're taking care of a lot of our behind the scenes business to continue to grow this platform and give everyone the exciting air combat information they enjoy hey jealous so i'm pretty excited for the new bvr productions hey now on the uh, patreon side how are things looking Oh, yes. We always like to update that every time. We are doing quite well, actually. We recently surpassed a milestone of well over 100 patrons, and they are keeping this podcast going financially and, as a benefit to that, gaining access to exclusive content. Since our last episode, we've added to our Patreon division lead ranks Joe Kunzler, Kenneth Dahl, Chris Bracken, and Stuart Dixon, and we even have a new Patreon strike lead, Lucas Graham. And one of our patrons, Sunshine, wrote us, his name is Adam Spink, and I just want to read this real quick. He says, to respond to a worry of yours from the end of year bonus episode, while I contribute via Patreon, I would hate it if in some way I was creating any pressure to create content. I know how much behind the scenes work is required. I have no expectation of any particular minimum number of episodes per month. Quite happy if you take a month or two off from producing podcasts. I'm not only contributing for these podcasts, but also the production time, admin time, thinking time, etc., etc. I consider it a privilege to be able to listen, so please do not ever be beholden to me and my fellow listeners. And Sunshine, I just thought that was worth sharing because it really expresses the heart of the listeners and just how gracious they are and how grateful I am to have such wonderful listeners. Because I did mention in that end of year bonus episode that I did feel a little bit obliged now, but just having that feedback from Adam Spink, and I hope that he represents others, is really comforting because, you know, you and I are just doing this out of our side availability, and it's nice to know that they don't hold us to task on it, right? I agree. That's a very gracious note from Adam. Thank you again. And just can't emphasize enough how much importance we place on getting our listener feedback, though. So we don't feel the pressure. We sincerely strive to uh, react to it and we enjoy listener feedback. Indeed. Well, on that note, we have some listener questions. Why don't you take the first one? We do. Yeah. Hey, so Jello, this one's actually for you. This is from a Patreon strike lead, Ken Ryan. And he says, you mentioned that you could have selected the F-14, but chose the F-A-18. Looking back on your career time span, would it likely seem that you had chosen the F-14? Would you probably have ended up in the F-18 after the Tomcat retired? Do you regret that choice? He says, I know from my career that I like to fly different aircraft types. Yeah, that's a thought-provoking question, Ken. I don't regret that decision because it doesn't do me any good, even if I did, which I don't. But... I chose the F-18 because that was the aircraft I wanted to fly. And would I have loved to at some point flown the F-14 just to be able to say that I did? Sure. But in my case, I wanted to be as much of an expert as I could in one thing. And I'm glad that I was able to fly the F-18 from the beginning because by the end, as I've mentioned before, I really did feel like I knew that aircraft as well as I've ever known any or anything really for that matter. And so, yeah, that's a tough call, but no, no regrets. I enjoyed my career and I don't want to look back and wish what could have been. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm from Minneapolis. 
I was just curious about the size or uh, the limitations that pilots have as far as like height and uh, body measurements go. I'm a taller guy, so I'm 6'3", and I hear a lot of things about how can't be a fighter pilot because you're too tall or uh, you're pushing the limits. But when I research into it, the only things I can find are Air Force or the Navy's height limitations as far as pilot goes. They don't really uh, have anything aircraft specific. I was wondering if there were aircraft specific limitations or how those might be specified or really just what the limitations are to be a fighter pilot. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the question, Alex. I had to put your question to Sue J. You might remember her from episode six. We talked about pulling G's and she looked it up for us and said that at six foot three or 75 inches, you're likely on the cusp of meeting the jet aircraft limits. Generally for Navy and Marine Corps, it is up to about 77 inches, so about six foot five. And the weight range for the anthropometrics are 103 to 245 pounds. But what I learned in this is that it really comes down to various measurements. And what they want you to do is to qualify for at least two different aircraft. So that is part of your training. Whatever you select, there's a likelihood that you have a community that will accept you. So it comes down to your nude body weight, your sitting height, your sitting eye height, your thumb tip reach, your buttocks to knee length, all these different anthropometrics as they call it. And if you qualify for at least two, then you should be good to go. And if you don't, well then I don't know how they handle that. Sunshine, did you have any experience or know anybody who had any issues with this? I did, yeah. So with the uh, buttock uh, to knee length, as you mentioned, I had a friend that unfortunately was over 26 and a half inches for his lumbar or his buttock to knee length. And the problem they have there is they're afraid that during ejection, the instrument panel may actually cut your knees as you're ejecting. I also had another friend, a female who her sitting height was not greater than 33 and a half inches. So during a rendezvous where the plane's in a turn joining up using geometry on another plane, while the her plane was in a turn, she actually couldn't see over the canopy rail safely. So she was too short for rendezvous. Wow. So did each of these friends of yours have opportunities in other communities? They did. They both were able to transition the uh, the tall gentleman to props and the short female to helicopters. Huh. Well, that's good that they still had a chance to fly and to serve. But yeah, you know, there is not really any way around this. I mean, the aircraft are built as they are. And to be fair, there was some issue as more and more females began flying that the seat weight was too high for some of them. So they had to change a few things there. But it's really, in a sense, not equal opportunity when you're talking air combat, because there has to be some limits on both sides of this, too high, too low, too heavy, too light. And unfortunately, and that's just the way it goes. So all right, the next question is from Tim Whitchurch from Salt Lake City. He asks, for many Americans, particularly in my generation, the September 11, 2001 attacks had a significant impact on the way many of us lived and viewed our country and its place in the world. I can vividly remember where I was, what I was doing, and how I felt when news started to pour in of what had happened in New York and Virginia. As an active service member at the time, I'm hoping you or one of your guests could give us detail from your perspective of what that day was like. I'm also curious what sort of response the military had immediately following the events as the world was figuring out what just happened. Sunshine, where were you on 9-11-01? I actually remember just before 9 a.m. on that day, I was ordering a gift for my sister over the phone. 
And the, believe it or not, the operator on the other end paused and she said, hey, there's a lot of commotion, something about a plane hitting a building. I was like, what? So I turned on the news and saw the rest of it. Now, interestingly enough, I was assigned to the USS John F. Kennedy out of Florida, and we got the word from our squadron duty officer shortly after the second impact that there was an immediate emergency squadron recall. And at the same time, there was a base closure. So as I'm driving, trying to get onto base, and in Jacksonville, they have limited roads, so they actually have the lit signs above the lanes that show a red X or a green arrow, so they can you know, redesignate the flow or direction of traffic. They had shut down all inbound lanes, and it was all outbound lanes as the people evacuated the base for not knowing what was going to happen. So when I got to the guard control shack, I showed him my ID, said that I'm essential personnel I need to get on, and I actually had to drive on the sidewalks to get to my squadron. Wow. What did you do when you got to your squadron? So we got to the squadron, we huddled around. We had a, a dial-in from our CAG, the senior pilot aboard the, uh, the air wing, with the air wing, excuse me, and our skipper. We sat around, we watched the continuing news unfold. And then from there, we got tasking to fly our birds out to the John F. Kennedy, who was getting underway. So at, during the time, ATC, as you guys probably remember, they had shut down the environment. So we had to get a special password, if you will, from ATC to launch. And then from there, it was amazing how quiet the comms were as we flew in CONUS or really in Florida there. And then as we flew out to the boat and our job eventually, once we land on the boat and the whole air wing got aboard, was to fly a patrol off the uh, eastern coast, uh, specifically near Virginia. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, that wasn't a good day. I remember where I was. Where was that? I was in Fallon, Nevada. I was making my way to work as a Top Gun instructor that morning and turned on the radio and happened to hear a couple of DJs talking about it. And when I arrived at the base, the security guard just waved me straight on, didn't even barely stop to look at an ID card or anything. And I slowed down and I said, are you guys not increasing security yet? And he said, no, why? I said, it sounds like there might have been a terrorist attack on the East Coast. And sure enough, I got on base. But yeah, to your point, they completely locked down the base the rest of the day, barely let anybody in or off. And we sat around. I ended up, frankly, going to the, there was nothing else to do. And it was disgusting to watch. So we had a gym inside our Top Gun spaces. And there was a TV in there, too. So I went and lifted weights while I watched. And it provided some good angst, of course. And we shut down our class for the day. And by the next day, we had manned alerts of camouflage-colored adversary aircraft. And as you'll learn on this coming interview here in a moment, all we had were FA-18As, so they lo loaded us with AIM-7 Sparrows because we couldn't carry the AMRAAM. Wow. And we, we loaded some bullets in the gun and a couple sidewinders. And we had guys sitting in the ready room in Fallon, Nevada, in their flight gear, ready to possibly be called. And no one ever did, thankfully. But yeah, I mean, it was tough times. No one really knew what was going on in the world. And frankly, the world hasn't been the same since. I agree. That's amazing. You guys had live ordnance out there and you're standing alert posture. Yep, out in the middle of the desert. But, you know, the Operation Noble Eagle that we take for granted now, the defense on the coasts, usually manned by Air Force F-16s, right. that wasn't as well established then. So they just needed any military aircraft to be loaded and ready so that I presume NORAD or whoever was running the defense could call for someone if there was a threat in a particular sector. And of course, we all know now in hindsight that that was pretty much it after that day. But yeah, tough times. Absolutely. All right, Sunshine, last question for today is from Benjamin 
from Leroy, Illinois. And he says, I've heard about an award for Navy fighter squadrons called the MUTHA, M-U-T-H-A. Can you explain a little more about what it is and its history? Now, Sunshine, I'm going to punt on this one because while I've heard all about it for many years, it was always one of those at arm's reach things in my FA-18 squadrons that the F-14 guys dealt with. And then when they went away, I guess it came over. But truthfully, I don't know that much about MUTHA. What do you know? Yeah, so firstly, thanks, Benjamin, for the question. The Mother Trophy was more East Coast-centric. So it actually dates back to the Vietnam era when the Navy had the F-8 Crusader. And it's an award that's presented annually to the Strike Fighter Squadron that demonstrates the most, quote, fighter spirit. The Mother itself is a trophy. The trophy orbits around a uh, something called, or somebody called Tanuki. So there's a legendary Japanese figure that had a jug of sake that was never empty and a coin sack that was always full. And Tanuki wanders through the Japanese countryside, taking part in impossible adventures and keeping company with some pretty fearless rogues. Now, in 1964, the VF-124 gunslingers had heard about Tanuki, and they were actually stationed in Japan, and they saw the statue of a female raccoon dog with her younger male at her side. So they said, hey, you know what? We're going to make this the trophy of Tanuki, and we're going to call it Mother. So that thing has flourished actually since 1964. And at one point, it was actually taken into space by Ken Ham back in May of 2010. (laughs) No way. So the thing really gets around. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Okay. And what we have every year is a strike fighter ball. And it's just kind of, you know, hey, guys getting together, getting all dressed up, bringing their their spouses along. And it's a good get together. The week prior, there's several events leading up to it. And one of which is the Mother Trophy. And kind of you get award points there during this uh, competition with golf and other different outdoor sports. And then it culminates with the actual presentation of the award and the strike fighter ball. Okay. Well, so you keep saying strike fighter. Presumably all that was originally fighter until all the fighters went away. And so East Coast, I guess that explains why I never knew that much about it because of all the places I've been based, I was never based in Norfolk, Virginia or Oceana. And so that makes sense to me. But yeah, I always heard about it. Never knew quite that much. Thanks for explaining. You betcha. All right. Well, that will do it for the listener questions. Now, before we get to the interview, Sunshine, I want to mention that if you want to learn more about the Super Hornet, check out fighter pilot podcast friend Brad Elward's masterpiece titled the Boeing FA-18EF Super Hornet and EA-18G Growler, a developmental and operational history. This 400-page book from 2012 chronicles how the Super Hornet came into existence as a result of the late 1980s Hornet 2000 study, which evaluated ways to enhance the range, payload, and bring-back capability of the existing FA-18 Hornet, as you will hear the three of us discuss during the ensuing interview in just a few moments. The book is available on Amazon, where it enjoys a 4.9 out of 5-star customer review. And if you purchase through the link on the shop page of our website, we receive affiliate revenue, which helps keep this show going. So be sure to add the Boeing FA-18EF Super Hornet and EA-18G Growler, a developmental and operational history, to your library, available on our website by Brad Elward. All right, on with the interview. All right, today we are talking about the FA-18A through D Hornet and EF Super Hornet. And here to help us do that is retired Lieutenant Commander Q. Rod 
Sterling, call sign barbecue. Barbecue. I think we'll just call you Q. That sounds United better. States Navy. Welcome, dude. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we also got sunshine over here. Now, you and I are doing our first interview with someone else except for our wives, which was kind of different anyway, right? Yeah, but it was. This is, And we thought this would be good because, Rod, you're doing our first aircraft in our aircraft series. And, of course, the F-18 is a good aircraft to start with I since you and so. I both flew it. And we're both here because we both flew it. Amen. So you're kind of on the hot seat, dude. All right. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Well, we won't do this on every aircraft series, but since this is the first one, we'll spend a little more time for the sake of the listener going through the way we're going to conduct the interview. Now, we'll start with the basic background on you, and then we'll get into some standard questions that we'll ask for the F-18, just like we'll ask for the SR-71 someday. And then we'll wrap up, of course, with how you got your call sign, uh, because everybody loves call signs. So first, we'll start with you. Uh, where are you from, and are you second or more generation military? Uh, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and went to school in Dover, Delaware, at Delaware State University. Excellent. Uh, my dad was actually drafted into the uh, Army during the Korean War time frame, and uh, all my life growing up, he always said, uh, don't go into the military. His experience was pretty negative because it was a segregated Navy or Army at the time for him. Mm. And he had a college degree, but he was always frustrated because his only task was to paint stoves. Stoves? Like cooking yeah, stoves? like cooking stoves, like cast iron stoves. Wow. And he hated it. So when I uh, finally joined the Navy after college, I was actually a little nervous to go tell him that I was going into the Navy. But he was really excited and happy, especially that I was going to be going in as an officer and then getting a chance to fly as well. Excellent. So it ended up working out. But Yeah. What uh, was your commissioning source? I went through... Uh, Officer Candidate School in okay. uh, Pensacola, Florida. Excellent. Yeah. And then obviously you selected flight school and jets. And was the F-18 the first aircraft you flew? The F-18 was the first uh, tactical aircraft that I flew. Yeah, okay. I actually went through uh, Air Force Primary oh. uh, unintentionally, basically. <laughs> the uh, guy in Pensacola said, is there any reason you can't go to Eden, Oklahoma? And I didn't have a good enough reason. So he sent, <laughs> so me, to Enid, sent me to Enid, Oklahoma to fly the T-37 okay. to start out. And so what were some of the tours you did in the military? Started out training in Lemoore, California in the F-18. And then the uh, first tactical squadron was uh, VFA-97, A-model F-18s. Yeah, you had a pretty good training officer in that squadron, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> Especially since he's looking at me right now. Yeah, I think he was, he was the well, best I ever had. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. No, that's where we met. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So we met there. Uh, went over back over to 125 as an instructor, down to San Diego for a disassociated uh, tour. Uh, then went uh, up to VFA 94 back in Lemoore, California. Okay. And I uh, finished up in the uh, depot, depot level maintenance for the F-18 out in Jacksonville, Florida. Excellent. So was that when, were you flying Super Hornets at 94? Had they converted by then? No, they hadn't. I flew the Super Hornet at the uh, depot in Jacksonville for the first time. All right. And what are you doing now? I'm working for United Airlines now. Okay. And living here in beautiful San Diego? Living in San Diego and playing a little golf, doing a little bit of flying. (laughs) And a podcast every now and then. There you go. All right. Well, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. Okay. So... Now that we know about you, you're going to help the listener learn all about the FA-18 Hornet and Super Hornet. We'll just do all of these at once, and we'll do the Growler some other time, I think, Sunshine, since it's technically an EA-18. And the way we'll do this is we will ask the same questions no matter what 
you fly. Now, of course, you're here to talk about the F-18, but next week I might get my friend Tom over here and he's going to talk about the A-7 and we'll ask the same questions. And then, Sunshine, we need to find someone who flew the S-3 that you and I can do a dual interview on and we'll ask the same questions there. Sounds great. And we'll go through these again, but Q, just for your knowledge here, it's going to be, what was it designed to do? What does it do well? Because sometimes those aren't always the same. Yes. And then describe the variants. Pick at least one feature and describe why the aircraft looks the way it does. So obviously we could go on and on, and this is where I'll have to schwack sunshine over there if he <laughs> goes too far with this. But, <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs> uh, but you know, it could be anything from the way the fuselage looks to the height of the landing gear on an A4, for example. Anyway, uh, what armament does it carry? This will be a short discussion when we get our friends in here to talk about the C2, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> list any significant strengths and weaknesses. What is it notorious for? And I choose the word notorious there carefully. And then if you have not already done so, provide at least one good sea story involving the aircraft. So if you happen to talk about the armament and you say, oh, this one time I went to shoot a missile and a missile X, uh, you know, maybe that's good enough. But if you've got a good sea story, people love stories. They're better than facts. You can uh, include <laughs> okay. that. Yeah, All right. That. And then again, you're you're on the hot seat because Sunshine and I both flew this thing. Whereas if it was the again A7, then we would just believe everything you said. Yeah, so, so it'll be instant fact check. That's right. <laughs> well, we'll see. And, and and I've written a few things down here on my notes. Hopefully, we can keep you honest. So now, in this one also, we are as I've already said, doing both the Hornet and the Super Hornet. Right. So if there are times when a strength of one is a weakness of another, let's go ahead and point that out. Sure. But as a class, we'll talk to them all together. And so tell us what the FA-18 was designed to do. And the name kind of gives it away a little. It sure does. Fighter attack is what FA stands for. Mm -hmm. And it's a multi-role fighter attack airplane basically designed to, I uh, think at the time, complement the F-14 as a uh, an airplane to replace the A-7, A-4 that, was, that were getting older. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was designed to assist in the air-to-air -air role and then also be light attack carry multiple different um, air-to-surface munitions. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I think it's the only aircraft that's ever had the dual F-A designation. Does that sound right? That sounds right. I didn't think about it till just now, but yeah, that does sound right. Yeah, it was part of that VFA-X program, the, uh, basically the, the Navy Strike Fighter Experimentation yeah. Program. And where did that stem from, Sunshine? Do you recall where the F-A-18 kind of got its roots? Yeah, the uh, basically there was a lightweight fighter program mm -hmm. that was sponsored originally, well, by DOD, but it was specifically for the Air Force, mm -hmm. and then the Navy was kind of a follow-on. They said, hey, we need to have a bunch of smaller fighters as opposed to these bigger ones that cost a lot. And so they came up with the YF-16 and the YF-17. I think I remember this in the 70s, right? Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. And the YF-17 was built by Northrop, and that was the Cobra. Oh. And then during the lightweight fighter program, the Air Force selected the YF-16, as we all know now as the F-16, right. right? The Navy said, well, it's kind of spindly landing gear. It's got a single engine yeah. around the boat. That's kind of an emergency situation already. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's look at the uh, the runner-up, if you will, the YF-17. And they did, and they eventually migrated and turned it into the FA-18. Very cool. Yeah. All right, so that's what it was designed to do. What does it do well? I think what it does well is point attack with light munitions. It's very accurate. Uh, Laser-guided bombs, and even with GP bombs, it's a step in the right direction as far as accuracy, as far as what it replaced, and it still does that well to this day. So you can keep with a, a high CEP. You have to help me with what that stands for. Circular error probability. probability. Yes. All right. 
so the CEP is low, even with general purpose bombs, considering what you're dropping. And then uh, when it migrated into the GPS era, CEPs even decreased some more. So it's very accurate uh, airplane to take munitions to a target. It does accurately bomb, yeah. whether it's precision or unguided. And I would also say it's pretty good at a lot of things. Yeah. As a strength. In other uh, words, that's the way to say it, right? <laughs> it's not yeah. fantastic, I would argue, right. at any one thing. Exactly. But it's really good at a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I agree with that. All right. Now, this could be a longer part of our interview here, but describe the variants. So we'll speak specifically to the A through F, and you can describe them however you want, and then we can fill in some sure. of the gaps if you miss any. But how would you describe the different variants of the F? Yeah, in my mind, there are two uh, Hornets, basically. There's a Legacy Hornet and then what people refer to as a Super Hornet. Mm-hmm. Legacy Hornet is A through D. And then the E and F is what uh, people refer to as the Super Hornet. Right. The A through D, the A and the C model are single seat. The B and the D model are two seat. There are very, various uh, models of those as well. Some of those two seaters are set up for just trainers. Some of those are designed just to have a uh, weapon system officer, a WIZO in the back. But A through D, single seat and two seat models of the legacy version of the Hornet. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Then you have the E and F. The E is a single seat and the F is a two seat. The E and F is really new, basically, compared to the Legacy Hornet, but it's still 20 years old. I think in 1997 is when it went into production, so it's still 20 years old. But what they did uh, was they made it larger. They made it able to carry more fuel, more ordnance, and they upgraded the technology. So uh, in my mind, I guess if you had a uh, Nintendo uh, in the old one, which was really nice, I enjoyed that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now you have the Xbox in the uh, Super Hornet. So Yeah, I would add to that. That the Hornet and the Super Hornet, to be fair, Sunshine, are different aircraft. Amen. They just have a lot in common. Absolutely. The cockpit is almost yeah. identical with some differences, mm-hmm. upfront control versus upfront control display. The FADEC, the engine monitoring, the hydraulic, I mean, it's all very similar, but it's different. So let's just start. That was a great description, Q, but let's just step through, if we will, very sure. quickly. So we had the A. The A was the first model, right. single seat. And very basic. Now, you and I flew... We flew the A in the FA-97. In the last deployment of the A sure in 2003. Did. Yeah. And you may recall, it did not have AIM-120 AMRAAM. That's correct. Our air-to-air was limited to Sparrow only. Yeah. And so we knew in that squadron that if we ever did get in a punching match, 
we probably were going to be doing something other than yeah, that. <laughs> that's because exactly we right. were at a distinct disadvantage. Yeah. But yeah. then the B was a two-seat version of that. And the B, I would argue, was only training. I don't know of any employment or tactical use of okay. a B model. Yeah, I didn't know Training that. and test. Right, yeah. there you go. And yeah. then the C was also a single seat, but now with upgraded systems. And within each of these, you had also lots, right? So the Air Force would call them blocks. Correct. Mm-hmm. We had lots. So you had lot one through, I want to say, 21. Right. And so by the time you got to the C models, which was around lot 10, then we started introducing, what, OBOGs at around lot 12, I think it was, or 14. 12 sounds right. And right. then we had the enhanced performance engines that the Kuwaitis paid for, the essentially. That was around lot 15. Yeah. We had better displays. Remember, you and I had the old... We had a, that's microfiche. right microfilm oh, yeah. in there for a map that would get stuck yeah. every once in a while. That's right. Yeah, right. and like only one display that you could select from on the DDI correct of two. Yeah, and a lot of again very similar but just different. And then to your point on the D, the backseat and I believe the backseat it wasn't just that a particular aircraft like number one twenty three was only a trainer. Yeah. They could reconfigure they that could one reconfigure to one or the other. Absolutely. And so you might have a pilot instructor at the back, so you want to stick and throttle, or you might have a Wizzo like Bloach from episode four, and he's going to want the hand controllers. Right. All right. Yeah. And the Navy, I don't believe, ever deployed or employed the D per se. But Correct. The, but the Marine Corps did. The Marine Corps right. did, and they still do, don't and they? And still do. Yeah. That's right. And they would call it the all-weather, et cetera. And they would use it for their FAC-A mission and other missions. And then, like you said, the E, single-seat, F, two-seat. We've talked about that before on the show. And then a couple others. We have an A+. plus. Yeah. So you take the old hardware and you add some new software now an A plus can employ the AMRAM. Right, might have a new radar like the APG seventy three, and some of the newer systems. Because in some cases the airframe still had life. Correct. But we didn't want the limitations that you and I yeah. had in VFA ninety seven. Right. And I think uh, Jello, when you mention hardware, you're not talking about the avionics boxes, right? Because they did add some avionics boxes like the APX right. one eleven. Yeah. I'm calling that software, but you're right. That is the actual okay. boxes and fair enough. So the airframe we'll call it right. Uh, just the airframe. The yep. okay. But the, the hydraulics for the most part are the same, the generators, the flight control services, et cetera. And finally there are foreign variants. So yeah. the Canadians call theirs the CF-188, but it's basically an Mm F-18, and I think they're about to get some Bs from Australia. And then there was technically a KF-18 that we sold to Kuwait, but the K meant meant Kuwait, not tanking. And I don't know, I think we called the Spanish F-18 the E-F-18 as well, Um, but those were just probably Department of State type nomenclature to uh, sell those. All right, what, uh, what did we miss on that? The only thing I can think of would be the NASA variant, too, right? The high-alpha research vehicle. Horror. Horror. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look at that. They did some warp wing technology, too. So the traditional control surfaces you think of, like the elevators and the ailerons, they actually removed the hinges and the segregated segments. Excuse me. Repeat, repeat myself there. But <laughs> And uh, they'll actually just flex the wing as yeah. opposed to having a true aileron deflection. Because what they're trying to do is minimize moving parts, which right. would increase reliability, increase maintainability. Well, absolutely. And that's that's different, though, than the uh, – that, that was the warped wing concept that uh, was later incorporated f- into the uh, high-alpha research vehicle, NASA F-18. Okay. Excellent. Wonderful. All right. So we've talked about what it's designed to do, what it does well. Talked about the variants. All right. Now tell us one feature there 
cue that describes why the F-18 looks the way it does. If you're forcing me to pick one, <laughs> or you can tell them more than one. I would Where pick would like the uh, <laughs> leading edge extensions, the Lexus, okay. uh, parallel to each side of the fuselage, go forward of the wing, right. and then make the fuselage look uh, wider from above or below. That's a very distinguishing feature of the F-18. If I were allowed two things, I would also say the dual vertical tails that also are not straight up and down. So looking at the airplane from behind... You can quickly tell it from an F-15 or an F-14 because those tails don't point straight up and down. They actually point out a little bit. So those two features, I think, are what make the F-18 look the way it does. And Sunshine, why are they canted out? Can you tell me? Uh, A couple of reasons. So, yeah, um, Q, I love the two characteristics you chose. So for the canted tails, first one's going to be radar cross-section. Okay. So from a a beam perspective, I guess, it's not going to return the energy directly to the source. So it'll lower the RCS. But also has to do with a high alpha uh, directional control. So if you think of an arrow and the fletchings on the back of an arrow, if you remove those fletchings, the arrow is going to kind of topple if you were to launch it off a bow. Mm-hmm. So if, if same thing will happen with an airplane. If you get rid of most airplanes, if you get rid of the tails, the, the plane will start could swap ends. So at high angles of attack, it, like for the F-16, how it just has the single vertical tail, if you're at high angle of attack, you can actually mask the properties of the control properties of that vertical tail. So it's effectively removing the tail. Right. So because the plane works well, the F-18 now works well at high angles of attack. One reason it does is because it has a can of tails that don't get masked. Mm. So there's a lot of directional controllability or stability that occurs still at high angles of attack. So they're kind of leaning out into the slipstream slipstream there. Which does have, by the way, a much lower angle of attack limitation, the F-16. Than Can we talk about be- what it is? Yeah, it's 24, yeah. 25. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I think the flight can, the flickest, right? Then they used yep. to call it? Yeah. Well, on the older ones, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, they, they limit it to 25, and there's a manual override switch. That's right. And then the, the Hornet that we know, the Legacy, as right. Q mentioned, is more toward 35 where mm. we get the tone, right? Right. So you build yourself an extra 10 degrees angle of attack, which is huge when it comes to speed. Well, let's be careful, though, to say that it's just because of that reason, because, of course, no. the whole airframe is different. Absolutely. But, but yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, Lexus. That is All right. Uh, I would add also that they designed it, as you said earlier, Sunshine, with the two engines, because we do prefer that, despite the F-35 at the carrier. So if you lose one, you still have a chance to recover with the other. And the Lex fences, we kind of glossed over that, but I believe that really does add to the slow speed capability, right, and the extra lift because is, is that what the Lexes are there? Yeah, the Lex the Lex fence is another cool addition that we oh, can yeah, talk about those. shortly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for, well, first, I guess the Lex, as Q had mentioned earlier, yeah, the Lex is going to create a lot of vortices. So one thing you don't want in aerodynamics is to lose your boundary layer, have it rip off the plane, because that's when you lose the lift. Mm-hmm. So if you can add more energy to the boundary layer, you do it. One way you can do it is through vortices, and these leading-edge root extensions, when they're up at a high angles of attack, create a lot of vortices that will energize the boundary layer which keeps it attached to the plane, which allows for lift. This is why you're on the show. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Talk to my wife. She's uh, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, she's up with it. But. Yeah, she does. All right, that's very cool. But then the Lex fences. Mm-hmm. Jello, do you want to talk about those? Yeah, so I guess, correct me if I'm wrong here, Sunshine, at some point in the development of the airplane, they realized that these vortices were spinning off the Lexes and hitting the sides of the vertical stabilizers and creating a lot of stress they hadn't planned on. Absolutely. So they put these little fences up there, and as I understand it, it just either blocked or redirected the 
airflow so that they wouldn't hit the vertical stabilizers the way they were and thus not cause a bunch of stress and cracking and all that. 100% correct. Yeah, so the, hey. the bursting vortices would cause flexing of the vertical stabs. So they actually put the, the fences on there mm -hmm. to uh, move them outboard and have them burst earlier so they no longer burst on the tails. They do look a little like an afterthought. In fact, the Super Hornet does not have lex fences. Good point. They and, do not. And they do cost us a little bit and I think, parasitic drag. Very little. That's right. They do. And if you look at the Lex fence itself, the front is actually not attached to anything, but the back is. Because during the original contract negotiations, Northrop built the back end of the plane. McDonnell Douglas built the front end of the plane. So, And where they met was kind of very similar to that scene, uh -huh. which is real, where the Lex fence is. So... Uh, so one one guy subcontractor built the Lex fence Northrop and then they slapped it onto the McDonnell Douglas <laughs> prime contractor front front end. <laughs> you just never know. What you you know. Just I'm learning don't something know. on this show Absolutely. too. Absolutely. All right, now Q, this is going to be the tough one. You may have to get your fingers and toes out because there's a lot. What armament does it carry? Start with air to air. That's a relatively easy one. Air to air. It carries the AIM nine. It carries the AIM seven. AIM one twenty air-to-air -air missiles, mm -hmm. and it also has a 20-millimeter Gatling gun, which can be air-to-air -air or air-to-ground. That's right. And we've talked uh, about that weapon on this show before. Okay. As we talked about earlier, not all carry the AIM-120, but these right. days the A's are pretty much gone. I think so, yep. yeah. Just right. A-pluses left. How about air-to-surface now? Again, this is where it gets pretty involved. Air-to-surface. I'm not sure I could name everything it can carry. <laughs> But it does carry GPS weapons yep. like the JDAM. Mm -hmm. It carries laser-guided weapons like laser-guided bombs and laser-guided Maverick. It carries uh, unguided rockets A through D, not the Super Hornet. Did you guys ever uh, get to shoot the Zuni rockets? Sure did. Yeah. Oh, uh, I did at the end. Dude, at, that's when awesome. I was in Fallon, yeah. yeah. Wow. Got to shoot some rockets uh, in Japan, actually. Cool. Yeah. It also carries uh, unguided bombs. Many different kinds, Mark 82, 83, 84. Mm -hmm. What am I missing? Well, let's see. So you've got some. <laughs> a lot of them, man. There, there are, are, yeah. I, I got one shoe off. So I don't you know. You did get if the laser guided weapons. Okay. We also have some specialty type weapons in that regard, like the Paveway 3 Super yes. Bunker Buster laser guided okay. weapon. We have Sunshine, your favorite, the Harpoon, which is an air to surface vessel type. Weapon, right? Absolutely. Air Forward to, firing. Yeah. We have the Slam ER. Oh, yeah. You said the Laser Maverick. I think that's all we have now, right? Did the air to, uh, the, sorry, the IR Maverick go away? It's kind of the way that it, it can yep. still carry it, but I don't know how many more are still functional, yep. I think. All right. Yeah. And then when we had Farva on the show talking about air to surface weapons, we talked about the cluster munitions, which are yeah. pretty much gone because they're falling out of favor. And the JSAL, I think you said the JAM. Oh, right, right. JSAL. Then we have our anti-radiation missiles, the HARM, and I think soon the Argum. Argum. Okay. Indeed. And the only other thing I've got jotted down here is the JASM, which I don't even know how to spell. I think it's got two <laughs> S's. Joint Air to Surface Strike Munition. Is that what it is? I think so. I have to look it up. Okay. It's, I don't know, even know if it's coming out yet, but maybe we can look into that one a little bit more. And again, like you said, the gun. Of course, we didn't really talk about chaff and flares, but that's not really a munition. Sunshine, you got any extras? What did I miss? No, I think I was very impressed with Q. Just he doesn't have a list in front of him for the audience at home. So bravo, <laughs> sir, bravo. For, for the you. future, we shouldn't tell people the questions. We should just put them on the spot. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on. List any significant strengths and weaknesses. Uh, significant strength is, I think, the multi-role capability of the airplane. 
Sure. So even uh, with the Super Hornet, not only does it do air-to-air, air-to-ground, but it also can be a tanker as well. So mm-hmm. you can uh, have an airplane with similar performance carrying gas for you to where you need it. I think that's one of the major benefits of the F-18A through F. Uh, the downfall, I think, with any fighter airplane is the amount of fuel that it can carry. So it's limited by range, and that fuel is as valuable as any weapon you've got on the airplane. You've got to manage it just like you manage uh, how many bombs you drop. Uh, you put the airplane in afterburner, you can burn through that fuel very quickly. Mm-hmm. I would add slow-speed flight, although we pretty much already talked about it. AOA control, for the reasons we talked about before, those are definitely strengths. Those are strengths, no doubt about it. The yeah. hands-on throttle and stick. Relative, we had an episode recently on fourth versus fifth. We all take that for granted these days, but earlier generations of fighters did not have as good of hands-on throttle and stick or the avionics with the fleer and the helmet and mids and all the different things. And then I would say as a weakness, although slow-speed flight is great in a dogfight, mm-hmm. especially once I started flying the F-16, it did not add airspeed very quickly. Right. It if gets slow, slow, but it won't get fast. That's right. <laughs> and that was a real bummer. And I had yeah. to relearn how to BFM because in an F-16, if I got slow, I could release a little pressure on the stick and load yeah. hold. I was back at 350 right. and go up over the top. So the was... F-18 guy always wants to keep it slow. That's right. He doesn't want to go back to getting fast because right. he won't be there. That's right. <laughs> how about bring back, Sunshine? We, you and I talked about that before rolling tape. Well, unfortunately, yeah, the, the legacy, as Q put it, does not have a lot of bring back. So what yeah. that means to me is if I don't drop the bombs in country, I come back with less fuel. Less fuel around the boat means less options. Or you jettison the bombs, which sucks. Well, yeah, and that's not always a yeah, preferred method, right. I'll say. So, so less options makes me more stressed. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference would be with a Super Hornet, as Q also mentioned, it's bigger. It's got, it can carry more. It can bring back more. So when I flew both the, uh, the legacy and the Super Hornet in country, and the bring back was, there was such a great amount of stress relief b- bringing the Super Hornet back with its bombs to right. the carrier. Right. And we really didn't talk that much about the difference between the two. I mean, you had said it's a little bigger. Yeah. I think the, like the wing area of a Hornet's 400 square feet. I think it's 500 on a Super Hornet. Okay. The yeah. internal fuel on a Hornet uh, single seat is about 10,100. Anybody remember what it is on a Super Hornet? Four- Teens, seven, yeah, it's five that, or something. Yeah, it's, oh, in, the, it's in the low teens. Okay, uh, thirteen eight or four, or yeah, low yeah, fourteen. Yeah. That sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, two extra weapon stations. Two extra weapon stations, but that wing area also allows you to fly a slower approach speed, and at the boat, that's going to be a big. That's a big deal. Right. Uh, Which is good or bad. You were paddles, weren't you? No, I was not. But I remember at a certain point about the in the middle of the in close and a super hornet. I'm thinking, okay, this will be over soon. Well, and there's there's, still, psychologically, <laughs> maybe it might <laughs> be a burden, but it there's does. Still a lot of time to get you're flying slower. All right. Uh, any other strengths or weaknesses, Sunshine? No, I think that's good. All right. Q, what is the F 18 notorious for? Now, again, you got to think of the word notorious here. It means some sort of notoriety. I guess that was overly obvious, wasn't it? But <laughs> maybe some press or some, where has it been seen in Hollywood or in the public or what is it known for? I think most famously right now, the F-18 is our demonstration team, the Blue Angels. Oh, there you go. And so everybody recognizes that as an F-18 when they see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people my age or younger even know what the Blue Angels flew before the F-18. So the Blue Angels are F-18s to most people that That's I know. That's right. 
and will continue to be. I'm working on an interview with a former Blue Angel boss who's awesome. in charge of their transition to the Super Hornets. Oh, cool. So hopefully that will air soon if we can yeah. align our schedules. And I would say it has not quite had the star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood like the F-14 did with Top Gun, but it will be the star of the next one, I believe. Sunshine, you can speak to that. I think you'll see a little bit of a, a sprinkling, we'll call it, okay. F-18. Yeah. As well as it was featured awesome. in Behind Enemy Lines. Yeah. Independence Day. Independence Day, yes. Where else does you. a fighter pilot get to punch out an alien? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it's got a little notoriety. And, of course, again, it is in other countries, Australia, Canada, Finland, Kuwait, Malaysia, Spain, and Switzerland. And so it's a pretty well-known airplane. But, I don't know, something about it to me, it still just lacks the real panache of an F-14. And I don't know if it's because of Top Gun or any other reason, but it, it's it's really really good i'm not ready to call it great am i allowed to say this if we're trying to get well, going on the show so i think you guys brought up a, a really good point it's a series of compromises right. or you could say it's a jack of all trades master of none yeah i mean how good was the f-14 and bombing in the beginning right well, it wasn't know, okay. it was an f right it yeah just, it exactly. shot things and shot things out of the sky right. and then eventually right. became the bomb cat and sure yeah okay all right so q how about a good sea story involving the F-18? You got anything harrowing? You got a uh, night in the barrel or anything else? Well, I have several uh, nights in the barrel that I certainly <laughs> remember I will never forget. Uh, hey, what I would like to say before I tell any lies or sea stories <laughs> is that uh, I flew the F-18, some version of it, in every tour throughout 20 years in the Navy, and I never had a major incident that caused me to be worried about whether the airplane was going to make it or not. And I think that speaks to the reliability of the airplane and uh, how it was built, how we're trained, and how we maintained it in the Navy. I, I certainly know guys that have had stuff, and certainly on the news you see where bad things happen, but I find it fortunate for me, at least, that I never had any incident that I was ever worried about whether the airplane was going to make it back. Uh, and that's that's really... The best thing, I think, about the F-18 in my time with it uh, over those 20 years. That's a bold statement. That's, That's really awesome. good. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm doing interviews now that I've gained a little proficiency having done this for a year, I listen for little sound bites that could work in the opening bumper of the episode. Mm-hmm. I think I just found it. Okay, so. good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good, good. Uh, I would agree with that. Someone asked me the other day if I ever had an engine failure, and I said, I don't remember. Yeah. So if I did, it was so benign. Right. I, yeah. I remember one that I shut down on a FCF. I shut one down on the FCF because restart. of a bleed air leak. Did you? Okay. And But I was never worried right. that the system wasn't working like it was designed. Certainly there was a failure there. Yeah. We actually found out what that was after I got back, but shut it down in accordance with the emergency procedures and the airplane flew just fine all the way back to base. So. Yeah, excellent. All yeah. right. Any quick sea story you want to share with us? Uh, one sea story, and it was completely my fault. Uh, <laughs> it's my first time doing a functional check flight off the ship. Okay. And you're supposed to take off first and land after that recovery. So it's a yo-yo FCF, quick okay. FCF, uh, FCF Charlie. Uh, the airplane wasn't cooperating. I finally got it good enough uh, or up so that we launched. I launched off the ship. And I shut one engine down. We were still doing that at the time. And I let the other motor go back below 85%. And the airplane went into a backup mode called mech. 
which I completely surprised myself with. (laughs) And so the stick has a whole lot less authority and you actually need to trim it in order to keep the nose up. So I was trimming and saying some wonderful words as I was getting the engine restarted and the other engine back above 85%. And that is my, this is how you don't do an FCF story. (laughs) So Sunshine, in 30 seconds or less, what is mech? Mech is a backup mode of flight controls, just as Q had just mentioned, and it it removes a lot of the feedback. So the computers are kind of taken out. It's more of a direct mechanical, i.e. mech, linkage between the stick and the stabs, and it requires a lot of force, so trim is usually used. So there you go. Right. You have, I believe, not just cables and pulleys to the horizontal stabilizer, but you are directing your stick to input, I think, the hydraulic actuators themselves. Is this sound right? Yeah, the hydraulic actuators are what you're actually telling to move those stabilizers. So there's a tendency to really over-control the aircraft. It doesn't do what you want. I don't know of anyone who ever had to land on a carrier in mech, but it was always a big fear. If anyone ever did, it was probably going to be ugly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think they sent them to the beach. Yeah, if if there was a place to land on shore, that's where they would probably go. Awesome. Well, Q, you have, I think, done the FA-18 Hornet and Super Hornet some justice Thank today. you so much. Bravo. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was a very interesting discussion. I always say this at the end of my episodes, but we could go on and on talking about the F-18. Yes. All the different design features, like the way the landing gear looks or anything else. But I think that's a good overview. Uh, Sunshine, anything to add on the F-18? No, thanks. It was a pleasure meeting you, Q. Same. Cool. Nice well, we can't you. let you go before you tell us about your call sign. So your name is Q Rod Sterling. Indeed. Right? Okay. My first name is just one letter. It's the letter Q. Yeah. All right. Uh, my middle name is Rod. Uh, last name is Sterling. They thought that would look good with Esquire attached to the end. <laughs> I failed them, obviously, because I never became a lawyer. Uh, and <laughs> This then, is your parents we're talking about? This not is That's <laughs> exactly okay. right. Uh, when I showed up to VFA 97, I was working for... The admin officer, his name was Bernie. I remember Bernie. Okay. Vaguely. This may be editable, but <laughs> they called me Bernie's Bitch Q. <laughs> and that turned into barbecue. Barbecue. I love it. And so you don't ever have to say anything uh, negative, but everybody knew what they were calling me when they called me barbecue. Okay. The Navy. Oh, man. Oh, uh, yeah. Call so my call sign also, being that my name was Q and they didn't want to give me anything that was uh, masculine or manly, of was course. also Barbie. Uh. And so there was a time period when I had a Barbie doll on the back of my helmet. And so it was barbecue <laughs> in that manner. And not like the sauce, like the doll. So there were people always ask me, are you the sauce or are you the doll today? I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's good to see that it's sold out evenly everywhere. uh, Sunshine and Joe. Scary fighter guy. We've all all endured. All right, Q. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for doing the dual interview. I think this worked out pretty well. Indeed. And unless you got any parting shots, either one of you, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. Sounds good. Appreciate you guys. Okay. All right, Sunshine, I thought that was a great interview. You've never met Q, but he's an old friend of mine. And a great American, yeah. yeah. It was my pleasure meeting that gent. It was a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad he's local. We'll have to get together again. In fact, we should rope him into like a Facebook Live session. He's a good-looking man. <laughs> Indeed. We'll get some ratings. Awesome. All right, so what did we not cover or what did we screw up on the FAA team? One thing I screwed up was the acronym for JASM. JASM is Joint 
air-to-surface standoff missile. Okay, and another weapon we did not talk about, but you did with Skosh recently, was the small diameter bomb. Is the F-18 getting that? The F-18 is going to get the small diameter bomb 2. Okay. So version 1 will stick with the Air Force and the F-15. All right. The net-enabled weapon version, which has got a Wi-Fi, if you will, adapter in it, right. the STB-2, will be mm-hmm. on the F-18 Super Hornet only. All right. And as always, we had a bunch of new terms and acronyms, which we will throw on our glossary tab on the website. And I think we all feel the same, that it is a good airplane. We certainly enjoyed our time in it. We felt safe. We loved flying it. And I miss it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, going back to the uh, the lightweight fighter competition, mm-hmm. it was the runner-up, right? right? It was the runner-up. I can't emphasize enough. Navy <laughs> picked it up and said, hey, let's use that instead of the F-16. And look how prolific it is now. No doubt. Now, the F-A-18, though, look, looks a bit different than a YF-17. To me, the YF-17 seems a little anorexic. Exactly right. They made it longer because they wanted to put more fuel in it. All right. And they changed a few more of the characteristics just to incorporate the landing gear, the radar, Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Specifically, what was amazing about the design of the the integration of the F-18 from the F-17 airframe is that traditionally fighters were built based on the radar. So the radar... What they care about is wavelength. Wavelength is a design limit for the aperture of the radar, basically the size of the dish. The size of the dish is going to be a des- design limit, thank right. you, for the uh, the width or girth of the airframe itself. So the AUG-9 was... Uh, so, for example, the AUG-9 and the size of its dish dictated the size of the fuselage of the F-14, for Absolutely, example? correct. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, like you said, it turned into a phoenix rising from the loss, if you will, from the yeah. F-16 competition. Indeed. But it has turned into... An aircraft that is still flying now 40 years later and will continue for several more years, at least in the form of the Super Hornet. All right. Well, then I guess that will do it for this episode. I want to remind the listener that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. What more is there to say, Sunshine? Let's get out of here, Jello. I guess that'll do it. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. I think at one point the F-22 was looking for additional congressional funding, and they were for a little while the F-A-22. And then as soon as they got the money, as I understand it, they dropped that like a hot potato. Oh, is that right? Yeah, does yeah. that sound right? Do you remember? Oh, that my does. goodness. Yeah, there's a kind of boondoggery, we'll call it, with that. <laughs> yeah. Super Hornet has the same thing, right? They called it Super right. Hornet. It's different plane, same thing. Yeah. No kidding. The yeah. Air Force guys didn't want the yeah. well, light attack. Yeah. Well, we but should... they do drop the, I believe, small diameter bomb. Yeah. About they do. Scotia, a previous episode. I think it's hard for a fighter guy to say that he's an attack guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll get, what color is the mascot? Maybe we could right. get some insight on that in a later <laughs> podcast. All right.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. 